Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to another Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder and director of Dietitian Connection. And it's my pleasure today to have Nicole Kiss with us. And we're going to be talking all things nutritional management and oncology patients. I'm really excited to chat with Nicole. Oncology is a a fond area um, from my past where I used to really enjoy working with patients with cancer. So really looking forward to chatting with you, Nicole. But before we get started, uh, I'd like to introduce Nicole. Um, Dr. Nicole Kiss is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian with over 20 years experience in nutrition and cancer within clinical research and health service management positions. Nicole's research interests include interventions to optimize nutritional and functional outcomes during and after cancer therapy with a particular focus on body composition. Nicole is the co-lead of the Exercise and Nutrition for Cancer Research Group within the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition. She's also a council member of the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia, or COSA, and chair of the COSA Nutrition Group. And today's podcast is supported by Resource Refresh, so we greatly appreciate their support. So welcome, Nicole. Looking forward to chatting with you. Thanks, Marie. I'm really looking forward to it as well, and thanks for having me today. So I thought we could start with just telling me a little bit about your experience in working in oncology. Um, Was that your first love or how did you come to be in oncology? Um, I came to be in oncology quite early in my career. Um, I think as a new graduate, probably only one or two years into practising, I was lucky enough to get a job at Peter McCallum Cancer Mm. Centre in Melbourne um, and stayed there for Mm. almost 19 years. So absolutely found my niche and my passion in nutrition. Um, So I I worked there, as I said, for almost 19 years. I worked mostly as a clinical dietitian in that time, but um, the last three years of of my career at Peter Mac, I was head of nutrition and speech pathology. So had an opportunity to be involved in oncology more at a management level as well. But I worked across most areas of oncology, so um, head and neck cancer, haematology, stem cell transplant, lung cancer, radiotherapy. Um, so managed to, really fortunate to have had the opportunity to work across a lot of different practice areas there. Mm. And for those who aren't familiar with the Peter Mac, I think that'd be like the dream job for those who want to work with patients with cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about how many beds it is and how many dietitians you have there? Sure. So um, it might have changed. So I haven't been there for the last three and a half years, so it could be a little bit different. Um, But it's around about an an 80-bed hospital. So um, in 2016, Peter Mack moved to a new site in Melbourne, um, custom-designed hospital, which was um, wonderful for patients really designed um, specifically around patient needs in oncology. So it's quite a small inpatient hospital, but a really large um, ambulatory service. So a lot of the dietetic practice um, at Peter Mac tends to be focused in the ambulatory setting, radiotherapy, day chemotherapy and and outpatient management. And did you have a particular cancer specialty that you 
really enjoyed or I'm sure they were all very challenging, but was there one yeah. that you were more fond of? Um, yeah, that's a difficult question. I think they're all, they all have their challenges and their um, their reasons that they interest you. Um, I think probably the most time I spent was in head and neck cancer um, and then probably lung cancer where I really started doing a lot more research in that area as well. So I'd say they're probably the ones that I feel most mm-hmm. passionate about. Yeah, and there's such a difference that dietitians can make in those areas. Absolutely. So what made you want to become an oncology dietitian? And um, tell us a little bit about your current role. Sure. Um, I guess, I mean, probably like a lot of dietitians in in many areas, not just oncology, I was really drawn to helping people. Um, Mm. And I guess I could see, particularly in oncology, that people were going through quite a life-altering experience having a diagnosis of cancer. And I felt there was a real role for nutrition there, um, not only in helping them get through treatment but I think also supporting people and their families as they're going through cancer treatment and diagnosis just to improve quality of life their ability to cope with treatment and and the functional outcomes that we can make an impact on in nutrition Um, I guess in terms of my current role um, I, I work at Deakin University in the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition um And I'm employed there as a senior research fellow. I'm really fortunate at the moment to have a fellowship from the Victorian Cancer Agency. So have the opportunity to really focus and spend time on on research. Um, I guess I moved from a clinical role into research. Um, Even in my clinical practice, I was drawn to research. um, And I just had that curiosity um, in my practice uh, coming across questions or areas where there wasn't really evidence to support our practice and, and sort of feeling a, a need and a drive to help answer those questions. Um, and moving across to Deakin and, and into my current role felt like an opportunity to be able to focus more on research and potentially have a, a broader or a wider reaching impact on, on patient care by mm. contributing to the evidence. Mm. Have you missed the clinical work? I I do at times. I think um, you do after a number of years as a dietitian want challenges, I think, in your role. But I think the reason we all become dietitians is obviously a lot to do with helping people, whether that's in public health or Mm -hmm. clinical practice. So there definitely are times where I miss that. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your current research um, or, and or research that you have coming up in the pipeline? Sure. Um, at the moment, my research is really focused around cancer-related malnutrition, muscle loss and, and sarcopenia. Um, mm. And you mentioned previously about my role with COSA and I've been really fortunate to be able to be involved in developing a position statement for COSA on cancer-related malnutrition and sarcopenia. Mm. So that's been... Um, really interesting to delve into the the literature there but in terms of my own current research um, through my my fellowship one of the studies I'm looking at is predictors of of muscle loss in people who are treated with radiotherapy for lung cancer so 
the idea is really to try and um, get a better idea of the contributing factors as people are going through treatment. So dietary factors, um, in inflammation, physical activity levels, um, we're really trying to investigate a, a number of different things that could be contributing to muscle loss through treatment with the idea is then that we can better understand the people who are at high risk of experiencing muscle loss as they go mm. through treatment and identify them early as they present and before they start treatment we then engage them into interventions early with the focus more on prevention as well mm. as part of that um I'm also doing interviews with, with patients who have experienced muscle loss um, with the idea of understanding the impact it's had on them as they're going through treatment um, and get a bit of insight into their preferences and their needs in terms of nutrition and potentially exercise interventions as well. Yeah. Another area um, that I'm about to start, and it's related, but um, I'm at the moment uh, trying to get uh, approval to access data in a large biobank in the United Kingdom. So uh, again, looking at, at predictors and, and factors that are contributing to malnutrition, frailty, sarcopenia in people with cancer, but this is in a really large biobank um, with the opportunity to explore across multiple different cancer diagnoses. So I'm yeah. excited and looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And in terms of the muscle loss, I'm curious, how are you measuring that? What tools are you using? Yeah, so um, in my fellowship, the, the research in lung cancer, we're looking at um, muscle from CT images there, but also bioimpedance spectroscopy as well. So really trying to do a bit of comparison because uh, I think uh, um, many dietitians would probably be aware in oncology that CT images take some training and it's quite time consuming, so not necessarily very practical um, in clinical practice, whereas bioimpedance is something that we can use, but there is still a little bit of uncertainty around the accuracy of that. Um, and in the, the biobank that I'll be looking at, they have bioimpedance, but also DEXA and MRI. Yeah, that'll be great to be able to you know, cross-check across all of those different um, data that you've got there in that biobank. That's right. Mm -hmm. Hopefully learn, um, learn a bit there. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges in oncology research? I know, I know there's many. What would be some of the top ones? Yeah, and there's, a, I guess, a couple of main ones that spring to mind. Um, I think particularly in oncology in the context of um, some of the medical and lab research that's occurring where they're looking at new treatments, potential cures, immunotherapies, which is all exciting and obviously really important um, to people as well. It's sometimes hard to get the recognition for nutrition research and, and really um, secure the funding and also um, engagement that we would really like. Um, but at the same time, we know, obviously, that nutrition has an enormous impact if we can address it and improve it on you know, things like quality of life, reducing unplanned hospital admissions, mm -hmm. a number of different areas as well. So that certainly can be challenging just to get noticed in that context. Mm -hmm. I think at a more study-specific level or individual level, um, recruitment like in any areas, recruitment can be challenging for oncology, I think, 
one of the main reasons is that the people we want to help most and therefore have involved in our studies are the ones who often tend to be the sickest as well. So that can be quite hard to um, try and, and, and get them involved in studies when they're feeling so unwell and often we're trying to recruit them early when they may just have learned about their cancer diagnosis, they're trying to make decisions about treatment and it's all quite overwhelming. So that's mm. things that I guess we have to take into consideration and be mindful and respectful of. Yeah, I remember I was involved in a, a trial, it was a multi-centre international trial with pancreatic cancer patients and it it took us years to get 200 patients across, you know, 10 different yeah. sites across the world. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely challenging with the nature of cancer, obviously. Um, what do you think are some of the gaps in research in oncology and nutrition, Nicole? Yeah, I think there, there's lots. Um, like most areas, there's always something that we still need to learn. But if I think I guess about the areas that I specifically research in, um, particularly looking at malnutrition and muscle loss in cancer, the type of nutrition interventions there, I think largely, well, we've got quite a good evidence on the role of medical nutrition therapy or dietary counselling, but a lot of the studies um, outside of that have sort of focused on single nutrients that can help with muscle loss. So things like looking at different um, intakes of protein, omega-3 fatty acids, some of the specific amino acids involved in, in muscle metabolism and synthesis. Um, what we haven't really looked at very well at the moment is sort of the role of whole foods or the types of dietary patterns that can support or prevent um, muscle gain or re reduce the likelihood of muscle loss. So that's certainly a big area. And I have a, a, one of my PhD students is investigating that at the moment. So I'm really hoping we yeah. see some interesting findings come out of that. Yeah. The other area, I think there's a quite a big gap is in the role of nutrition can play in multimodal interventions too. So that's an area that's really just emerging. And I think we see that and the recognition that nutrition um, or the role of nutrition can have in, in ERAS protocols. We've seen that develop um, quite substantially over recent years, but there's still a large role for nutrition in prehab and re rehabilitation after cancer treatment as well. And I think quite a number of the studies have focused on exercises, rehabilitation. There's not a lot looking at combined treatment with exercise and nutrition. And certainly um, my research group uh, published a review fairly recently looking at um, combined exercise and nutrition interventions for both muscle and bone loss in cancer, we really found um, it was largely focused on people with prostate or breast cancer, very limited research in other cancer types. And the majority of the research is really focused on rehabilitation after cancer treatment. So very little focus on prevention as people are going through treatment. So I think that's a real gap at the moment. Mm. So many areas for some young dietitians to get started on their research career. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I'm sure you'd be a willing supervisor. <laughs> I sure would. <laughs> um, what about moving towards clinical practice now? What, are the, what do you see are the main nutritional issues in patients with cancer? 
Sure. And I think it varies a little bit depending on what stage of their cancer treatment or recovery they're at. But certainly going through cancer treatment, malnutrition and muscle loss um, are really large factors in nutritional management and obviously why I'm so interested in those areas as well. And that's really related to the treatment side effects that they experience or even the result of the cancer diagnosis itself, whether that's a head and neck cancer and um, obstructing swallowing or gastrointestinal cancer that's you know, um, causing malabsorption or obstruction again as well. So um, then the treatment, obviously, on top of that, uh, regardless of what type of treatment it is, there's always some type of side effect that can really impact on, on dietary intake and, and therefore contribute to um, a, a greater risk of malnutrition and muscle loss as well. And that can obviously persist after treatment as well in the recovery period and in some people for quite a long time. So there's certainly a really important role for dietitians in following patients up as well. One area I also think um, there's a, a you know a big area for, for dietetic practice is in helping patients return to or start eating a more healthy diet once they've recovered from their cancer treatment and they don't um, and they're not experiencing those sort of acute effects of cancer treatment any longer. And, I mean, obviously, we know the role that diet plays in cancer prevention, but also in secondary prevention and the prevention of other chronic diseases as well. And, and we have, um, I guess, there's a little bit of emerging evidence to show that um, when we're pushing so strongly for high-energy, high-protein diets to prevent malnutrition during cancer treatment, sometimes patients can then really struggle with returning to a, a healthier diet when it's appropriate afterwards. So I think we need to do a little more there as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some of the adverse consequences. What would be some of the nutrition impact symptoms that you commonly see in these patients? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, certainly... Lots of different GI issues uh, like nausea and vomiting, um, see loss of appetite, diarrhea, bloating. There's so many different uh, side effects that can impact on, on food intake and it really depends mostly on the treatment but also the, the cancer itself as well. So I guess an example there, if, if someone's having radiotherapy to the pelvic area because of a, a colon or rectal cancer, they're really high likelihood of experiencing diarrhoea and again depends on the dose that they have but um, the diarrhoea can be quite um, distressing for them as well. Um, obviously, chemotherapy, people will commonly experience nausea and vomiting depending on the type of chemotherapy they're having as well or um, oral mucositis as well. So there's many different um, effects that we can see that can be really challenging for people. Mm. So what types of nutrition interventions do you typically recommend? And obviously it's going to vary, as you said, based on the, the cancer type and their treatment type um, and then the symptoms that you just mentioned that they might be experiencing. But what would be some of the common interventions you would look at providing? Yeah, so I think um, obviously, as you said as well, we, we really want to individualise that to the person. So depending on their treatment and the specific types of symptoms they're experiencing and often they need to have some of those symptoms medically managed in order for us as dietitians to be able to have a real impact with our nutrition interventions as well. So it's really important to engage with 
the broader team to make sure that those symptoms are recognised and, and being managed as well as possible. But I think um, in terms of the type of interventions, really what we're trying to achieve as dietitians is to ensure nutritional adequacy. So largely focused on providing enough energy and protein, um, particularly when we're trying to prevent or um, minimise malnutrition during treatment. And that can take any form, I guess, depending on the symptoms or what's clinically appropriate. So whether that's whole foods or modified consistency diets, oral nutrition supplements, enteral or parenteral nutrition. So I think we really need to use all of those different strategies at our disposal to try and make sure our, our patients are receiving the nutritional adequacy that they need. Mm. And what about managing some of those symptoms? Are there other tips that you would normally give patients with cancer and their families? Yep, so any particular symptoms? Oh, I'm just thinking, um, you know, if they've got trouble swallowing or um, the mucositis. Yeah, yeah, well, certainly. Well, trouble swallowing, um, often they'll need to have a modified consistency diet and, and will be quite similar to mucositis as well. I think um, the types of things, I guess, that are really important there um, with both of those issues. Um, but if we focus a bit on mucositis, um, pain control is one of the, the main ones. So whether that's um, oral analgesia to really help sort of numb that feeling of pain in the mouth or that may often need to be escalated to stronger pain medications depending on the degree of mucositis. And then, as I mentioned before, once um, medically the symptoms are being managed well, then we can intervene nutritionally. So with mucositis in particular, uh, modified consistency diets become quite important and that can range depending on the degree of mucositis from soft foods to puree or often people will need to have um, even enteral nutrition, depending on the d d degree of, of difficulty they're having with um, their, their swallowing and the, the pain. Um, but oral nutrition supplements are used quite frequently in that situation. Um, and of course, the type of food, so not just consistency, but helping people in terms of um, reducing the types of foods that can be an irritant to mucositis as well. So particularly spicy foods or foods that are quite acidic, they can be really problematic for people with mucositis. Mm -hmm. What about um, challenges for the nutritional management of dysgeusia? I'm not sure if I've pronounced that correctly as well. Yeah, I'm, I actually hear people say it many different ways. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so dysgeusia, dysgeusia, I don't think it really matters. Mm -hmm. We all know that we're talking about taste mm -hmm. changes mm -hmm. as well. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, for dietitians um, in terms of the GI symptoms that we are managing in oncology. Um, often it can be really difficult to provide really sound advice to people um, and it's it's not something we can necessarily make go away as well the the issues with um with taste and dysgeusia as well so i think um one of the things and certainly one of my my colleagues in in oncology um research did her whole PhD around taste changes in oncology and i, I learned a lot um in that time but really trying to understand the underlying factors that are contributing to the taste changes, I think can be quite important. Um, so 
one of the things that we tend to not necessarily explore a lot in our assessments as dietitians is is what could be contributing to those taste changes. So is it in fact um, taste changes themselves that are occurring or is it changes to smell which might be impacting on uh, the experience that patients are having with flavour of food. It could be due to a lack of saliva, a number of different things. So there certainly needs to be a bit more work done in this area in terms of helping dietitians be able to explore um, and understand and and help patients in terms of assessing what could be contributing to those taste changes. And once we understand that better, then we can actually provide better advice. So if we know that it's related to um, a lack of saliva, for example, we can talk to patients more about a lot more moist foods or um, the use of artificial salivas, for example. So um, there are some emerging frameworks coming out that have or that have been published recently that could help diet, dietitians in terms of guiding uh, the exploration or, uh, with patients around taste changes. Um, and again, my, my research group also published or have just had accepted, I should say, a systematic review in this area looking at taste changes um, and implications for nutrition practice as well. And I think that was the conclusion we came to also that dietitians do need some more support. Mm. I'm just thinking, I know you're in lockdown in Melbourne as we're recording this, you know, with COVID-19, we're seeing the taste changes. I'm wondering if there's some sort of immunological thing that's happening in both cancer and COVID-19. It would be interesting to yeah. explore that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there have been links between the pro-inflammatory cytokines mm. and the impact on taste. Mm -hmm. So certainly... Um, there is some evidence in cancer that that can be contributing and would obviously be quite relevant to COVID as well. Mm, yeah. What about GI intolerance issues? Um, you've mentioned a couple of them, such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhoea. Um, what's the best method of sort of managing those in patients with cancer? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, obviously, again, optimal symptom management medically is mm -hmm. key, um, but in terms of dietary intervention. So, for example, with someone with nausea, we would firstly try and understand some of the triggers for that nausea as well. So I guess for someone, um, some people can often find that the smell of food can trigger that nausea and vomiting as well. Um, so in that situation, um, if it's possible, we would be advising people to um, have someone else prepare meals for them. If that's not possible, then having ready prepared meals that they can access um, from the freezer or uh, focusing more on cold foods that don't tend to have quite the same strong smell as, as hot um, and cooked foods do. So there's some of the tips. Also, I, eating small frequent meals can help too so um, sometimes that can feel counterintuitive to, to people experiencing nausea they don't feel like eating at all let alone often um, but you know we know obviously as dietitians that an empty stomach uh, everyone's experienced that feeling of an empty stomach contributing to making them feel unwell um, so asking people to eat little amounts often generally light foods as well can be a lot easier for, for people to manage um, when they're experiencing nausea and vomiting um, and again oral nutrition supplements can be really useful in this setting as well people often find a drink much easier to cope with than than the whole meal or a snack yeah 
And is there a particular tool that you use, Nicole, to make an assessment of all of these? Is it, would you use something like the subjective global assessment to make sure you've checked off whether patients are experiencing all of these nutrition yeah. impact symptoms? Yep. So I think in, in my practice, the, the patient um, generated subjective mm -hmm. global assessment we particularly use, it just has a, a wider range of nutrition impact symptoms that are really applicable for oncology. So that's such a comprehensive tool it, it's really helpful in guiding practice and then being able to understand exactly what's affecting patients and then guiding the intervention you provide mm -hmm. and finally how has nutritional management in oncology changed and improved over time yeah, so I think I was reflecting on, I guess, the last 20 years that I've been working in oncology and I think um, the role of nutrition and the importance of nutrition is much more at the forefront now than it was when I first started practising as a new graduate. Um, and although dietitians were always members of the, the multidisciplinary team, I think there's a much greater awareness now of the impact of malnutrition, of the role of enteral parenteral nutrition um, during various different cancer therapies. I think the advent of or the introduction of ERAS and nutrition being a key component of that um, you know, early oral intake after surgery has really brought nutrition more to the forefront of practice mm -hmm. in oncology and we're just as dietitians a lot better integrated into the multidisciplinary team than we were previously so I think um, those are some of the key changes I think I've observed over that time mm -hmm. and I think those changes have happened as a result of people like yourself who have really you know being a leader in the nutrition space in cancer um, and doing research in the area and, yeah, really being an advocate for nutrition in oncology patients. So thank you to you and all your colleagues who have, you know, made that difference over 20 years. Thank you. It's been enjoyable and there, there are, I've got lots of wonderful colleagues who are contributing that in that area. So I think it's a team effort. And where do you think we still need to go in terms of clinical practice and research in oncology? Yeah, so I think, I guess, um, building on what I've just said, um, as you know, I mentioned earlier about the position statement we developed for COSA. Um, and as part of that, we, we did a survey prior to developing that position statement just to gain a better understanding across um, health professionals, so not just dietitians, but nurses, oncologists as well, of their awareness and perceptions around cancer-related malnutrition and, and sarcopenia. And I think while awareness is high, and as I've just mentioned, we've seen better integration of dietitians into the multidisciplinary team, um, nutrition more at the forefront of care, um, but there's still gaps in terms of um, fre more frequent screening for nutrition. There's still limitations um, in time where health professionals and often it's the role is often left to nurses to do that screening um, we're getting better I think it and um, obviously you've contributed enormously with the development of the MST there we're certainly getting better um, at screening um, for malnutrition I think much less so now for sarcopenia which is really becoming quite a big issue um, and and quite distinguish from from malnutrition in oncology as well so that's an area I think we need to to grow um, 
and learn from the success we've had in malnutrition screening and start integrating screening for sarcopenia into practice as well. Um, certainly assessment of, of muscle mass is something that while it's quite common um, we talked about the PGSGA and the SGA as well, and we do those um, physical examinations of muscle stores. Um, but for sarcopenia in particular, we really need to have a, um, an, an actual ac accurate estimate of muscle mass. So getting better as dietitians, I think, at integrating assessments of muscle mass into our clinical practice as well is something we, we certainly need to develop more. Couldn't agree with you more and we'll include the, your position statement um, with COSA in our show notes so everyone can have the link to that. Well thank you so much Nicole for sharing all of your um, expertise in this area and um, look forward to seeing your research and particularly some younger dietitians, no doubt your students research to come so that we can um, you know in 20 more years we'll have an even greater difference and a greater presence in this area of nutrition and oncology which you know, I'm just, I just love it as an area. So uh, it's fantastic that you get to do it every day. Thank you. And thanks so much for having a chat. It was wonderful to be able to talk about this area as well. I'd also like to thank Resource Refresh for supporting this podcast. We greatly appreciate their support. And thank you to all of you for tuning in today. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button. That's it from us. Thank you again for listening, wherever in the world you're tuning in from. We'll see you on a future Dietitian Connection podcast. 